0: I'll do take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 21, and to the passage we had read to us a moment ago. I remember as a little boy exploring the area, in the, when we moved house, exploring the new area. One of the things that uh, I enjoyed doing was, for the first time, our home was at the edge of the the area where we lived, the city where we lived, and uh, I was therefore able to go and explore into the countryside and follow some of the tracks that I discovered there, avoiding farmers who sometimes took pot shots at little boys who were invading their territory, uh, but made it all the more exciting, really, to to be there. And I remember one occasion finding this gorge. It was uh, obscured because basically you could usually not getting anywhere near it. There was housing, and then there were fields, and there was this gorge and trees, and and, uh, I was pretending that this was the Amazon jungle. I remember at the time, and I was going up the Amazon in the forest and uh, paddling along this stream at the base of this gorge, and I remember at one point climbing up the rock face and discovering on the rock face that somebody had carved in the rock A kind of monument, uh, a monument to three young men, ages 14, 16, and 17, who had been hunted down by, shall we say for delicacy, foreign soldiers from the south of the land where I lived hunted down by these soldiers who were during that period of history particularly aiming, targeting Presbyterians, people like you. (laughs) And these boys had been hunted down by these soldiers and had been killed because they had shown some allegiance to the National Covenant in which the people had covenanted together for Christ and his covenant in order to follow the crown rights of the Redeemer. I love that expression. The crown rights of the Redeemer, which is to say they believed that when it came to their religious practice, it was not the business of the government or the king to intrude and to demand or command that they in their religious practice, that is, as those who were ruled by the Word of God, that it was the crown rights of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, that had the only authority when it came to church practice, church government, church belief. I admired those boys. I remember going back there on my own and praying that God would raise up in our day people with such courage as to take a stand for the crown rights of the Redeemer. Well, in many ways, that story and their courage reminded me of what we have described here in this little section at the end of the story of David's life. We saw last time that this is a summary statement, a final reflection, if you will, on the administration of the kingdom of God under David, the Lord's anointed. Rather than being four random war stories, they probably are part of a kind of honor roll that was uh, erected to remind the people that the life of David was consumed with this great God given task of ridding the land of the Philistines who were the enemy of Israel. In fact, in many ways <laughs> in, in many ways we just get the levels right here, because I'm going to get louder rather than quieter. In many ways, of course, the the problem with the problem was that that we have we've seen David engaged in conflict against these enemies in the past. We, remem- we remind ourselves that when David first of all comes onto the horizon, in what context does he come onto the horizon? I asked the children downstairs earlier, and they told me the answer. It was when David fought and killed Goliath. You remember with his stone that got Goliath in the eye, and down came the giant, and David chops off his head. David is dealing with the enemy of God. He is dealing with the enemy of God and God's kingdom. And that's how his story begins. And what this testimony is saying here at the end of David's life, reflecting not on things that happened at the end, but over the course of David's reign, it's telling us that that commitment by David to securing Israel and to defeating Israel's enemies remained a priority on David's agenda as the Lord's anointed. That God continued to give grace to David and help to Israel by destroying their enemies by David's hand. Now if you want to know specifically what this passage is about, we are told quite clearly in the text in verse 15 and in verse 22 where the focus is laid Not so much on David himself as on David's men, his men, verse 15, and his servants and officers, in verse 22, these men who were heroes in Israel. And they're responsible for the felling of four giants in Gath at the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. In other words, the work that David began in the killing of Goliath, his servants completed. They undertook to help him in that task. They're identified with David in the business of killing the giants who represent the enemies of God. Keep that in your mind as we process this story. Well, the story begins with a close call. The first character to appear in the scene is a Philistine by the name of Ishbi benob which sounds like somebody from Star Wars, but isn't. But this guy has great weaponry. Just downstairs, they were working out. David Hanrahan, who leads the Sunday school downstairs, is a banker. You could tell that the minute you walked in this morning because he was getting the children to work out just how much an ounce was and how you calculated ounces and shekels or whatever it was that, that, was, that are mentioned here in the text. We're told that the weaponry of his spear weighed three hundred shekels of bronze. Well, apparently, according to his calculations down there, it works out what I'd already worked out, without doing the calculations, because somebody else did it for me. Seven pounds in weight, his spear head. This massive spear, not as big as Goliath's, the original, but a big spear nonetheless. He also has something new. That's all the text says. Uh, English translators uh, Uh, include the word or supply the word sword, a new sword. Rather, basically, it is a new weapon. We don't know what it is. It's an unknown weapon. It's the newness of it, the newness of it that is emphasized in the text. Nobody had encountered this weapon before. That made it all the more frightening for anyone encountering this giant. And the crucial part in the early part of this little passage is, of course, that David grew weary. David grew weary. Here is the king. He is exhausted and vulnerable and apparently has inadequate protection. We often think of David, don't we, as a heroic figure, a figure of massive amounts of energy and strength, almost supernatural power. Of course, it wasn't supernatural power. It was very natural power. But here we see him as a human figure, able to get tired, in the midst of battle, and here he is tired and vulnerable. We remember too that our Lord Jesus in His humanity became tired and vulnerable in His humanity. And on the last night, for example, of His earthly life, in that last battle in the garden, we find Him vulnerable and exhausted and sweating great drops, as it were, great drops of blood. Well, here is David, vulnerable, tired, and the enemy does not hesitate to swoop in for the kill. His spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze. He was armed with a new sword, and he thought to kill David. So we're invited into the mind of a monster. He thought to kill David. And this raises a question. What if David had been killed at this point? Or what if David had been taken captive by the Philistines? Supposing David's life had not been spared. They almost had him. That's what the writer is telling us. They almost had him. They almost killed him. Everything is hanging in the balance. And we are to understand as we read this. You see that here is the cause of God and his kingdom that is in the balance. Everything is in the balance. Everything is up for grabs at this moment in the story. And there have been other times in the history of the world when that has happened. When you remember, Abraham takes Isaac up that hill and is about to kill Isaac. He has the knife in his hands. And we think, supposing Abraham had killed Isaac, there would have been no Jacob, therefore no Israel, therefore no Judah, therefore no David, therefore no Israel, uh, no Jesus. Everything is hanging on the balance. When Pharaoh decrees that all the little boys of Egypt are to be put to the sword, supposing that order had been carried out, absolutely. Supposing one little boy had not survived and his mother had not protected him from the angry Pharaoh. Supposing there would be no Israel. There would be no successor. Everything hangs in the balance. And supposing... Supposing the order of Herod had been carried out on all the little baby boys of Bethlehem and they would all been slaughtered that night, every one of them, including the son of Mary, then all of God's flock would be lost. All of us would be lost. We would still be without hope and without God in the world. Everything is hanging in the balance And there are times, you see, the lesson is this. Times when the cause of God and his kingdom, indeed the cause of the Lord Jesus, as the Lord's Messiah, seems to be fragile, appears to be weak, appears to be marginalized, appears to be threatened by the enemies of God. You think, for example, of the Huguenots in France, about 50% of the population, in fact, more than that at one stage. And they are threatened by the powers that be. And on St. Bartholomew's Day, there is this systematic attack all over France that slaughters hundreds of thousands of Huguenots. And you think the cause of God has come to an end. You think the work of God is going to cease. Or you think of those killing times in Scotland when the forces of the state combined together to destroy God's church there in Scotland. And it seems as if the whole cause of God is under threat. And there are times in the world when the cause of God seems to be under threat. It is such a small group of people. I think of the United Kingdom today. Four percent of the population will be in church today. And it seems as if the cause of God is in such dire straits. This is the picture. This is a close call. And it raises the question, can God keep his promise to David? God had given to David this promise of an everlasting kingdom, of someone from his royal line who would reign forever and ever. What is at threat here at this moment, you see, is the gospel. Because as Paul is announcing the gospel in Romans 1, he makes it very clear that Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh. And there are times, it seems, that the cause of Christ and Christ's kingdom are threatened by the enemies of God. And there are many close calls in the history of the world. But then we have this honor role. We have to begin with this man, Abishai. We've heard heard about him before. David is in the crosshairs of the Philistine giant when suddenly out of the blue one of David's men, Abishai, rushes to his defense. He comes to his aid and attacks the Philistine and kills him. The action is reported with brevity and economy of language. Here's the giant with the sophisticated equipment and he is dispatched and that is the end of the story. No doubt if this was a Hollywood movie the action here would be stretched out. You would see the hand-to-hand conflict. You would see every blow and every ounce of blood that was extracted from the enemy, but here it is foreshortened for the sake of some of us with, with more tender imaginations. All that matters in the story is that this was the end. It was the end of the enemy of God. That's all that matters. And it's told as directly as that. He is killed and he is left dead there on the battlefield. You see, there will always be giants who swagger and attack the church of God. There will always be enemies of the kingdom of God in the world. This is the principle of Genesis 3, verse 15. You remember the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There it's set up. The whole story of humanity is set up before our eyes. The whole story of humanity is. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And they're locked in conflict. Or you think of the announcement of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember to his disciples when he says to them, I will build my church. And I will build my church in occupied territory. I will build my church right outside the gates of hell. But the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. This conflict is built in to the very fabric of the church's experience. Paul says in Acts 13 that it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. John Calvin commenting in 1 Peter says, God has so ordered the church from the very beginning that death is the way to life and the cross is the way to victory. And so Abishai acts to defend the cause and crown and kingdom and covenant that is associated with David. Do you notice that? You shall no longer, they come to this conclusion, that David's men swore to him, right, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the the lamp of Israel. It's remarkable that they should call him this. When you think of David's exploits His faithfulness under attack, his steadfast love for the Lord and for those who have made the covenant, but also his massive failure as a husband and father. But Abishai says, in spite of that, you're the Lord's anointed. You're the Lord's anointed. You have a special significance. You are, as it were, like the lamp, the ever-burning lamp in the sanctuary of Israel, the very symbol of Israel's dependence on God and the favor of God. The, the very light that God has placed in Israel that is meant to be a light that will bless both Israel and the nations. The light that shines, you remember in Zechariah, and that shines and burns not by light, not, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The light of Israel the light that is going to come into its fullest fruition when David's greater son comes and says, I am the light not only of Israel but the light of the world. A bright shining light. Well, says this man, we are going to fight for the Lord's anointed. We're going to fight for the light of Israel. We're going to engage in the battle that was your battle We're going to do exploits in your name and for the sake of you, our King, David. And there's a sense in which every one of us who belongs to the Lord Jesus is enlisted in his army and is equipped by his Spirit to do what these servants of David did, to fight on behalf of the Lord's anointed, to engage the enemy on his behalf. Well, you look at verse 17, 18, 19, 21. Four men who are God's servants. We're not being told there anything about their sanctification or their piety or their spiritual condition, but their action. What do they do? That's what's important in the story. What they do is they fight for the covenant people of God and they fight for the Lord's anointed. They are fighting for Christ's crown and covenant. So there's a war. And Elhanan, the son of Jair, the Bethlehemite, strikes down Goliath a Gittite. And some of you are thinking, what? Two Goliaths? Two Gittites? And uh, it could very well be that there's a textual problem here. I think... For example, the repetition of the double barrel <clears throat> excuse me, the double barreled name there that we have in our English translations is probably wrong since the second part of that double barreled name is the word that's used later in the text and translated a weaver's beam. Which looks like the text has been damaged somewhere in the past. Remember, it's the original that's infallible. Human translations are are very fallible. But we have another text that might clarify for us. It's in First Chronicles 20, verse 5. There was again war with the Philistines, and Elhanan the son of Jair, struck down Lahmi, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. That seems to be the solution. This is a brother. In other words, it's a family thing. This exceptional size and strength are part of a family genetic trait. Each of these men who are engaged in this battle is given their full name. Here's a roll of honor recording their extraordinary deeds. And there's a principle here, I think, just in passing. It is that we can recognize God's people's service for Him. We can give God glory for gifts and graces that He bestows on His servants. We're wise if we take time to acknowledge or applaud or mention the instruments through whom God has worked. If we happen to be one of those instruments, it's important for us to remember that we have nothing except what we've been given by God. But there's nothing intrinsically wrong in having a plaque to remember a former pastor who's had a significant ministry or applauding an artist who performs to the glory of God or mentioning publicly the faithful service given by one of our brothers or sisters. In fact, it's helpful to be reminded that God does his work in the world through instruments. So there's a general point here. You look at the New Testament and you find Paul doing this. He mentions Priscilla and Aquila and he says, you know, they once risked their lives for me. Or he mentions, uh, our Lord mentions his disciples and you know what. What they were like. You know that they fell asleep and so on. But but he does mention the fact that in spite of their being erratic sometimes, he says about them, you have stayed with me through my trials. So it's good to honor those who serve the Lord. And these men are honored for risking their lives for the sake of the kingdom. They put their life themselves in harm's way. They weren't interested in reputation, they weren't interested in life itself. When it came to Christ's crown and covenant, they were prepared to die. I think of those three boys hunted down outside Hamilton in Scotland because they had pledged their hearts and their loyalty to Christ's crown and covenant. And I think of another man that I read about this week who'd been asked to do something at an event of national significance and something from his past that he had said was brought up and instead of standing his ground, he capitulated, walked away because he didn't want, quote, to be a distraction. And I thought, what a contrast. Where, are the, where is the backbone? Where are the men with chests that C.S. Lewis spoke about? When he derided the fact that we live in a day of men without chests. No courage. No strength of conviction. Not willing to be ridiculed by colleagues. Not willing to take what it means to stand your ground with Christ and his covenant in days when Christ's crown and covenant are under threat and attack and criticism and mockery by people in the world. come to this last character, we see there's a clear message coming through in this story. We're introduced to a man. We're not told his name. Let's call him Mr. Six Digits. Uh, what these? This guy is a, a bit of an interesting genetic mix, and I'm sure there's some condition that he had. But really what's unemphasized in the story is that He taunted Israel. Look at verse 21. He taunted, that is, he mocked Israel. Just the way Goliath had done. Early on in David's story, the Hebrew word means to reproach, to deride, to defy, to mock. And you see, what we have to understand is that when you mock Israel, you mock the church. And when you mock the church, you mock the master. And so when the church of Jesus Christ, as the Israel of old, is... uh, is defied, is laughed at, or is threatened, or is reproached, or derided. The people who are doing this are in fact aiming their attack at God. They are defying God. They are mocking God. Do you remember David made this so clear right at the beginning of the story when he's confronting Goliath and he says, you know these taunts that you're throwing at us, these abusive words that you're saying about us, do you know that these things are being aimed at the Lord God of Israel? And it's in the name of the Lord God of Israel that I face you today. And here we're being told that right through his ministry, right through his career as their king, there are other men who take up that same stand and they say this, if you trash talk the God of Israel. If you trash-talk the people of God, if you trash-talk the Church of God, you are trash-talking God Himself. This is Christianity, Old Testament style. You trash-talk the Lord. And here's the clear message. This is what those who defy and defile and deride and attack and mock, the church of God can expect in the end. With every giant that bites the dust in this story, we are being pointed to the ultimate end of all the enemies of God. This is announced, isn't it, in Genesis 3 that I mentioned earlier. The seed of the woman will eventually crush the serpent's head. He will be wounded. His people will be wounded. But he will eventually crush the serpent in the end. And when the Apostle Paul is reflecting on that, and is reflecting on his ministry and is reflecting on the sufferings and the persecution of God's people to whom he's writing in Rome he says to them at the end of his letter to the Romans he says you know God will soon crush Satan under your feet under your feet what happens to the head happens to the body. What happens to the leader happens to the lead. What happens to our king happens to us who are in his kingdom. And We have a part every time we resist the devil, every time we take a stand for truth, every time we're, ta- we're willing to take a fall for our stand for truth, to perhaps lose your career pro- path and prospects, to perhaps even lose a relationship that will not work out because of your stand for God and for truth. Every time that happens, you know what we're doing? We're crushing Satan under our feet. It's accumulating this final end of all the works of the devil. Matthew Henry writes this, David began his glory with the conquest of one giant and he concludes it with a conquest of four giants. Death is a Christian's last enemy. Death is a son of Anak, a giant. But through him that triumph for us, we hope to be more than conquerors at last, even over our enemy. Here's what John says in 1 John 3. This is the reason the Son of God appeared. Supposing I put that out and we had a little quiz. What do you think is the reason the Son of God appeared in the world? Pretend you're not a member of 10th Presbyterian, that you're a member of any other Presbyterian church that doesn't have the history you've got, so you don't know your Bible, okay? Why did he appear? Here's the answer. To destroy the works of the devil. The gates of hell shall not prevail against him. So in the fullness of time, the Lord of history will bring about the promise that he made to David. Do you remember? The Lord has promised to David, saying, By the hand of my servant, David, I will save my people Israel from the hands of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Will God keep that promise? These men's stories say yes. Jesus' story says yes. The faithfulness of the Huguenots and the Scottish covenanters says yes God will keep his people and God keeps reminding us of the promise of one who will be born of a woman born of a woman to crush Satan in the end we come to the clear message which is simply this that all the enemies of God's anointed will lie crushed in the end. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Now I said that the whole point of this story is to emphasize these four men who are the servants and officers of King David. Therefore, the application is to you and I, who are the servants of King Jesus. We're engaged in the conflict. We're fighting an enemy every moment of every day. The enemies we fight today are the thoughts and the philosophies and the speculations and the theories and the ideas of a world system in opposition to God. We fight it not with spears and swords or machine guns, but we fight it... With spiritual weapons. The weapons of our warfare. Are mighty under God. For the demolition of strongholds. We use the sword of the spirit. Which is what? The word of God. We use the weapon of all prayer. In all circumstances. The secret weapon. That we have against our enemy. We go into battle fortified. Not with a tank. But with the righteousness of Jesus. Covering our breast and making us invincible to the enemy. We go into the battle. Because we go in the strength of God, no lion can him fright. Heal with a giant fight, as John Bunyan puts it. He will have the right to be a pilgrim. Let's pray together. Father as we go out into the world equipped by your grace with the help of the Lord Jesus the strength of God we learn from this very physical very earthy very substantial story from the past written for our learning and our instruction as your people today we learn this clear message that in the end all Your enemies will be put under the feet of your son. He must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. We also learn that we're part of that work. That what the king did once for all at Calvary in crushing Satan, we get to do in the humdrum of our everyday existence. We pray that you would make us faithful pilgrims, loyal soldiers of King Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.